Cool. Back again. Back again. 2024. Yeah, a new year. Yeah. Um, so we took a break last month, but we took on a bit of a more challenging book this time. Yeah. Um, yeah. We were chatting about it now, now and saying that it's a, it's been quite a difficult read. Yeah. Um, I think I don't think it's because of the content's lack of interestingness. But just because of all the scientific terms and, and all of that kind oh. of stuff. And I think the style of writing was very different to what we used to. Uh, yeah. Um, like you said, very scientific. So yeah. it does. Yeah, it felt like I was back at Varsity reading yeah, back, at, <laughs> back in the in the lab. Yeah. yeah um, but yeah, it was. Yeah, like I explained it to you, it was brutal, but. Uh, I think one of the more helpful eye-opening books we've read to date, uh, yeah. to, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Hmm. So what is this book that we're talking about? <laughs> Go for it. Um, okay, yeah. So the, the book is called How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feltman Barrett. Um, yeah, I'll give a quick summary and then yeah. we can dig into it. Yeah. Okay, so How Emotions Are Made is a book by Lisa Feldman Barrett, a distinguished professor of psychology and a neuroscience researcher. This book delves into Barrett's theory of constructed emotions, offering a fresh perspective on how emotions are formed. Initially, the book presents the classical view of emotions, which suggests that emotions are simply reactions to external events. Something happens, and as a result, we feel a certain way. In the classical view, these emotions are thought to have distinct markers in the brain, akin, akin to a fingerprint. For example, it is often said that the amygdala is the center of fear in the brain. The book then goes on to discuss the recent research that challenges this classical view, advocating for the theory of constructed emotions. This theory proposes that emotions aren't mere reactions. Instead, they are complex predictions shaped by our past experiences and current context. According to this theory, we perceive and experience these predictions as reality, rather than experiencing the raw sensory input as reality. This theory suggests that our emotions, and even our perception of reality, are essentially a continuous flow of these constructed perceptions. In the concluding chapters, Barrett explores the broad implications of this theory on various aspects of life, including health, law, and our general understanding of the world around us. So, yeah, it's uh, quite a mind-bending, oh. challenging um, thing to like wrap our head around yeah, yeah. Uh, because i think we used to that well, that classical view yeah yeah i think it's it's bringing a view that you cannot entirely dismiss but actually pay more attention to uh, i think that's um that was the outcome after reading the book for me um because i mean like you're saying it's we Oh, for myself before this point there was a way in which I thought our brains work or how emotions work and stuff like that I had a different perspective of it and I mean we 
you brought it up briefly before we read the book of some interesting things that you had come across the first time you listened to it. But having read it, it's like, mm. you know, just having that bub go off or go on and be like, okay, is that how emotions are made? Is how how, not just emotions, but is that how the thinking process sort of yeah goes like i mean we we did a book on thinking and um yeah how to think how to think yeah. and that was at a very high level nothing as yeah. deep as you know half weights all stems yeah. from <laughs> what is the circuitry in your brain that is causing this? Yeah. yeah i think that was a helpful book on on just like the practical yeah. implications. And I mean, she does touch on the practical implications, but like you say, this book is a lot more theoretical, mm. which is partly why it was much more difficult mm. for us to understand. And hopefully we can clear up some of the, the, the difficult concepts, but, but it is still a challenging mm. one. And um, yeah. And also something to keep in mind is that it is just a theory of yeah. emotion mm. Um, as with most things, um, they are theories and people come along in future generations mm. and say, oh, okay, wait, mm. well, this doesn't quite align with that. Mm. Um, and they have to then come up with a new theory. Yeah. Um, so this theory, though, seems to be the one that um, current, I think it's called affect scientists, mm. um, but if essentially like emotion scientists seemingly are, are leaning towards more mm. now. But I mean, she did mention on how there's this kind of cycle where people push one narrative mm. and like years ago, <clears throat> researchers put into this thing on how emotions are made and how they're described and stuff and which is essentially the classical view, which she refutes, but not refused, but kind of... Uh, well, I think she refused. <laughs> yeah, I was right. Well, you, you can agree or disagree <laughs> with her, but she, she is definitely on the side I, of that I, I, I do want to be very extreme on what I say. <laughs> I was, I'm trying to pick my words carefully here. Um, but she kind of says on how that research, which she says is extensive research, came to a similar conclusion. Yeah, but what, 100 years ago? Yeah, and people essentially forgot about it and like mm. what decades later not even you know um years later people mm. are embarking on that same research wasting as she put it people are wasting money uh yeah with this research yet you know she thinks that people need to lean towards um you know the constructed theory, theory yeah. yeah um yeah so, so just to clear things up, because that summary, maybe some people like immediately understood it. I'm sure it's confusing mm. and it took, I mean, I think, I don't know how it was for you, but it took me like, I think uh, many, many hours to really like, be like, oh, okay, I think I get what she's saying. It's fairly straightforward, mm. but it was quite difficult. No, I, I should admit, like, even now, like, that's probably the most confusing piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> of work that uh, I've gone through. Like, and it's uh, not you, Lisa, it's us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, like, it's got some interesting views, um, mm. to say the least. And, um, yeah, I think we'll dive deep into them. But, I mean, even before we were 
discussing certain things and the words we're using to kind of put the same point across was very different. And like yeah. one person would speak and like, and then eventually I'll be like, oh, okay, I, I get now what you're trying to say. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, that's that was the book for me mm. <laughs> in its entirety. So yeah, yeah. I hope, uh, and just know that this is, our understanding of the text (laughs) (laughs) not exactly what she was trying to put across. So if we, you know, somehow misquote her or say something that's different to our views, um, blame her, not us. (laughs) But but we try our best, you know, to put across our understanding as best we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good caveat. Um, So maybe just quickly to start before we start digging into things, because we'll break it down into three sections and we'll discuss it and and that. But just before we even dig into that, I think a useful thing to keep in mind, and we'll probably touch on it in various ways, but is the idea of the classical view of emotions is essentially reactive. So something happens in the world and we react to it. The idea of constructed emotion is more along the lines of prediction. So we predict what is going to happen and the prediction is our perception. We perceive what we predict and then the sensory input comes in and and our brains tweak over time to match, to to reduce that prediction error. But a difficult concept to grasp in one sentence, but prediction, the prediction is is the reality that we experience oh. is what Lisa is saying. And I, and I think having read this, I, I lean towards that view. Um, now I have for a fair bit of time oh. from the initial reading, but now rereading it, I think it's sort of like, yeah, it, it makes sense to oh. me, but it is a difficult thing to grasp oh. because we think that we are seeing the, the physical mm. stuff around us. I think the one, uh, sorry to interject that, but no, the no, one no. thing that, um, was very interesting to me was she mentioned and it um, kind of touches on what you're saying about what our reality is, what we merely perceive or um, what we've predicted and we construct um, mm. our reality to be. And the one thing was how we create our own environments. Mm. Um, I don't know if you remember that section. And I was like, I was, it was very interesting to be like... <laughs> Oh, to me, when I read that, I was like, you know, whatever situation we find ourselves in, as much as we are probably reacting to some sort of input, not not trying to mix the two, I know I'm using words that are very similar, but what I'm trying to say is that whatever we experience... And like you said, based on our predictions and our experiences, we, or based on our experience, we then predict and from that prediction kind of create our environment. Mm-hmm. And in essence, I'm not, I'm not, take this with a pinch of salt, but <laughs> in whatever situation you find yourself in, as much as the external factors, but the level at which or how deep down you go down that rabbit hole is mainly caused by you. I don't know if I'm making sense. It's it's you creating that space. And um, 
I think later on, I think she she talks, she speaks about how, um, though when she's talking about anxiety and depression, it's about how you decide whether to go on thinking certain thoughts and making a pathway, or let's say activating those neurons that create a pathway, or immediately stopping so that you don't create that pathway. I don't know if... Uh, yeah, no, um, what, what you're saying makes sense. I, I think what you... um, To just clarify what you're saying, you, you're not saying that the past um, that you have doesn't affect your... Um, Experience, so you you don't have like full control, yeah. Um, because you have a past, and maybe you were raised poorly by oh, your parents, oh. or raised really well, or something, and that ha- has an effect. Oh. But I think what you're getting is that we have more control over our emotions and the way that we react oh. and the the things that we do than we think that we, yeah, do. we, we do. Yeah, like um, kind of so. What I'm like helping ourselves out of that situation. It's merely. We can. Re- we we need to sort of. Sorry, maybe I think maybe like a phrase would be like we can retrain our predictions. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah. Not saying Trump, but in a better way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um. Okay. So should we dig into the three different parts? Yeah. So we're gonna break it down in, um, chapters. So chapter one to three is just general, like going over and getting a general feeling. So it's kind of stuff that we've now discussed a oh. bit, but just getting a general feeling for what's going on, what's the language that's used um, and trying to clear up some some ideas. And then um, the next part is chapter four to eight, which is talking about feelings and then based off of feelings, how emotions are made. Oh. So that's like quite a, kind of the central part of it. And then... Towards the end of the book, chapter 9 to 13, is what does this mean for us? Um, So, we'll look at, yeah, based off of this theory, how does that affect us and what should we do about it? Um, Yeah. Okay. So, general. Classical versus constructed view. So, um, in the introduction on page X, (laughs) um, she says, yeah, The Tom Hearn's story of emotion goes something like this. We all have emotions built in from birth. They are distinct, recognizable phenomena inside of us. When something happens in the world, whether it's a a gunshot or a flirtatious glance, our emotions come on quickly and automatically, as if someone has switched a a flip. Flipped a switch. (laughs) Um, We broadcast emotions on our faces by the way of smiles and frowns and scowls, and other characteristics, uh, characteristic expressions that anyone can easily recognize. Our voices reveal emotions through laughter, shouts, and cries. Our body posture betrays our feeling with every gesture and slouch. So that's the classical view of emotion. And then contrasting that is the constructed uh, theory of emotion. So... Um, It says at the bottom of that page, it says, um, so what are they really? What are emotions really? When scientists set aside the classical view and just look at the data, a radically different explanation for emotion comes to light. In short, we we find that your emotions are not built in, but made from more basic parts. They are not universal, but vary from culture to culture. 
They are not triggered. You create them. They emerge as a combination of physical properties in your body, a flexible brain that rewires itself to whatever environment it develops in, and your culture and upbringing, which provide that environment. Emotions are real, but not in the objective sense that molecules and neurons are real. They are real in the same sense that money is real. It's a hardy illusion, but a product of human agreement. It's hardly an illusion, but a product of human agreement. And that's the theory of constructed emotion. So, yeah. Um, I don't know if you have any comments there, Peter. Uh -uh. But no, I can go on to the next part. So, yeah. something that's useful um, that we've discussed a little bit is the idea of the, the faces. So, there's the set of um, basic emotions that the classical method uses often. Um, and it's on page five of the book where they have these different facial expressions and you can um, think of them as the ideal forms, if you were Plato. Um, you can think of them the ideal forms of emotion. So one would be the smile. So smile instantly people in the Western world, will uh, Western culture will say, well, of course a smile means you're happy. Maybe. And it's very tightly associated with happiness. And the same with a frown means you're sad. Mm -hmm. um, and she kind of digs into that a little bit. And um, we won't, I think, dig into it too much. But at the end of the day, um, what she gets to is that the idea of variability, not one single thing, is the norm. Mm -hmm. And that kind of pushes you slowly away, not fully, but it slowly pushes you, nudges you away from the classical view oh. because the classical view kind of um, both on physical features and also in the head, um, the classical view kind of says, no, there's, there's fingerprints. Yeah. And pretty much like a one-to-one relationship between how you feel and how the expression you have on your face. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's a very good way of putting it, a one-to-one -one expression. Oh. Um, so at one part of the book it says here uh, I think it's page 11 nearly three quarters so they do a test and then what they say here is that nearly three quarters of our subjects who saw her face alone rated it as sad so there's a, a frowning face let's oh. say um, nearly three quarters of them relate, rated it as sad but when presented with the scenario with the scenario 70% of subjects rated her face as displaying fear so basically when they were given the context they changed their prediction oh. which is kind of strange because um what the classical view sort of leans towards is saying no you can look at someone and then immediately you say okay well this is the situation they're sad or they're happy oh. um but already we see okay well there's some nuance there the the environment also kind of the context also kind of plays a role. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, it says, yeah, this variation is held true for every emotion that we studied. An emotion like fear does not have a single expression, but a diverse population of facial movements that vary from one situation to the next. So what you were saying is that, um, the classical view is that one to one, Ooh. Whereas this is saying, no, it's more like one to many. Mm. And so the term that they often use here is variation is the norm. 
Um, yeah, and um, it's an interesting idea, but it it's somewhat intuitive as well. Like, yeah, I think we experience people and the way that they react to situations and we know that they're happy, Whoa. but maybe one person might smile, but another person might just look almost oh. content oh. to us, like what we would classically consider as, as content, content or... Um, Sometimes if someone just has a certain type of face, they might look like they're sad, but they're actually happy. Um, and yeah. Then um, the the idea behind that variance and that is something called degeneracy. So the comment that she makes here is that one of the most surprising things I learned as I began to study the neuroscience is that a mental event such as fear is not created by only one set of neurons. Instead, combinations of different neurons create instances of fear. Neuroscientists call this principle degeneracy. Degeneracy means many to one. Many combinations of neurons can produce the same out outcome. Um, yeah. Um, I think it's, it's helpful to understand those, yeah. those ideas. Um, yeah, I think it's, <clears throat> yeah, like you said, the idea of one emotion can be represented by many feelings within you. Yeah. Um, so, you, like you said, that the classic view um, would say just because you're smiling means you're happy, but with, um, with the other view, it's rather saying like you can smile in cases where you're not happy. You know, you can be very angry, but <laughs> but you actually smile. Maybe as mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. that you kind of calm yourself down in the um, in that sort of situation. But just because people are leaning towards a fingerprint of um, emotions or to kind of say if you show in this face then it means you're happy or sad then that would leave people confused mm. and but like you're saying it's like we based on experiences and you know experiencing others then we are able to use other factors um to kind of have an imagination of what someone might be feeling. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. And I think it's not, it's not so apparent to us that emotions don't have fingerprints or that they're not like inborn because of the fact that we don't that often experience vastly different cultures. Oh. And even if we do experience vastly different cultures, we normally don't have the ability to speak their language fluently. Yeah. And so we can't really understand their emotions. So oh. it, we look at them and we see them uh, smiling or frowning or this, and we make inferences, we make judgments oh. about like, this is what they're oh. feeling. Um, and the, the difficulty as well is that later we'll chat a little bit about the whole idea of emotions um, as categories, but then also emotions as a social thing. Oh. Um, so it's a social reality. And the reason why that's, important to realize is because if we think about emotions as social realities, um, we are in a very 
in quotes, fixed social reality. Oh. So we might have a partner and we can recognize that partner's emotions very easily because of the fact that we're so attuned to them. Oh. We used to, we, we are, our predictions of their mental oh. state is actually quite good because we've been corrected oh. enough times yeah. to be like, oh, okay, this is what, when they look like this or act like this, this is oh. how they feel. And then we kind of take that out from our families and our friends and then we go and try and apply that same ability to predict another person's feelings not that we're perfect at predicting our partner's feelings or this or that but we take that same concept and we go and try and predict if we're a um, security person and we try and predict like the face of that person looks like they are upset and they're going to attack or something Um, and then you get it completely wrong (laughs) yeah yeah um then, uh, so another comment that she makes, so this is all part of that like general understanding. Um, on page 23, she says, um, what we colloquially call emotions, such as anger, fear, happiness, are better thought of as emotion categories. Each is a collection of diverse instances. So that's that idea of um, d- uh, degeneration or degenerate, of um, brain patterns where there's different like routes to get to the same emotion and we categorize those in certain ways um, and again we'll touch on that in the next in the next section then a last point before we move on from from the general part is this idea of like trying to get a grip of how how we can think about it. Because again, maybe for some people it's intuitive. I know, again, for Peter and I, it wasn't. And so one of the tools that she uses is images, visual images. Um, Two specific ones, one we'll chat about later, which is rainbows. And the the one that we'll look at now is just um, an image of effectively blobs. It's just random blobs on a page. And then um, she says something along the lines of when you look at these blobs, your brain doesn't have any concept or category for understanding these blobs. And so it just sees them as blobs. But then on the next page, she says, this is actually a bee. Um, And then you look again at the blobs and you can't see anything but a bee. bee. (laughs) And it's just, it's almost now impossible to go back to just seeing it as blobs. Because now our our um, predictions have been in quotes corrected. Oh. The error we like there's an error that was fixed, but it's not. In this case, it's an interesting one because oh. it's the the idea of it is like: is there really blobs there, or is it really a bee? Oh. And there really are blobs, but we really can predict the bee. Oh. Um, and so, it's the reason why it's a helpful analogy is because one it helps us to get an intuitive feel Mm. for the fact that our brains are prediction Mm. machines that there really isn't a bee there but our brains are predicting that there is Mm. but then on the other hand it helps us also see the possibility for where mistakes can be made because maybe our brains really start latching onto this idea that there's a bee there Mm. And for this purpose, it's not really an issue. But if it's the case of like a um, an illness or something like that, then it can become problematic oh. because now we're holding on to uh, a false 
prediction mm. and we can't escape it um, um just or, to yeah. add on to that i think that was also a good um depending on how you look at it a good example on, on how you can also you cannot identify emotion or let's say feelings that you've never experienced i think to rephrase it um she normally would would say something along the lines of you can't experience emotions that you don't have the the categories or the words yeah yeah i, I know that's a typical word which <laughs> <laughs> you want to stay in tune in but i'm just saying on, on a high level kind of not digging deep like that's just mm. a perfect example to be like if you you don't know something unless you experience it is what i'm trying yeah. to to say so it's like you experience the blobs as just blobs but then just because you've got more information regarding it like you're saying then mm. your predictions about it change and now all of a sudden all you can see is a b mm. so what i'm trying to say is like let's say i'm trying to and i don't point this as but you've never lost a family member for instance mm. um you know the feeling because you know that okay i'm feeling this way because i've lost it and you kind of um attached that feeling to the situation but in that moment that emotion is new to you like it's the first time you actually experience it mm. and only after that are you able to say attach that to loss yeah. for instance yeah. um but initially loss was probably just a loss of maybe your keys you know this, yeah. you know but you never knew that there was also another dimension if i may just to use yeah. the term lightly to loss and that's a result of losing a family member or so i think some. i get what you're saying so so you so um say for example it's the first time you're experiencing it mm. then your prediction for for the way that your body should feel is quite off because correct yeah you it's it's a drastic change mm. to everything about your situation especially if it's like a, a close family member mm. or partner because mm. they actually are in the environment with you they affect you day to day and stuff like that so it has an effect on the way that you will feel mm. and your body predicts that you will feel certain mm. ways but you actually end up feeling a lot worse because that person calibrated your body mm. um, um budget and stuff we'll get into later but then as you experience more loss so maybe by the time you're 90 and a bunch of your friends mm. have died and things like that it's sad but it's not as traumatic it's just like i understand that that's a part of life mm. and it's because your body is your your mind is getting better at predicting what the emotions are and um you able to better understand and and categorize and um then your body can can um predict how the body budget needs to change Trick. which then affects how you feel mm. and, and all of those kind of things along those lines <laughs> but, so. but yeah so it was just we tried to paint a different picture of 
the picture that yeah. we had b- before us that in terms of the picture like if you look at it it's just it's a whole bunch of nothingness like i mean mm. i looked at it when i was getting there like i just didn't understand what the, all this <laughs> where she going to you yeah. know and then when you read and like you said it's like now i cannot unsee the bee mm. you know which and you know i couldn't see before i was actually telling james that i actually want to conduct that experiment to show yeah. someone the the image and be like what do you think this is you know yeah. and if they can't and then say what it is and see if they actually see the bee in it because yeah, yeah it's it's quite interesting and frightening yeah <laughs> it's, it's wild mm. yeah um so yeah that that bee is a helpful tool for trying to get a get a better sense of um it's a very visceral idea of like w- what it actually means to predict um, and learn new categories and things like that. Um, and then the last thing in that general section is um, inborn and universal versus social reality. Um, but let me just read something else quickly before we get there. So uh, on page 30, she says, your brain makes meaning from an aching stomach together with the sensations from the world around you by constructing an instance of that concept, an instance of emotion. And that might just be how emotions are made. So that's what she's leaning towards. And then this is an example that she gives, which I think is very, um, very relatable. Um, When I was back in graduate school, a guy in my psychology program asked me out on a date. I didn't know him very well and was reluctant to go because honestly, I wasn't particularly attracted to him, but I had been cooped up for too long in the lab that day. So I agreed as we sat together in a coffee shop to my surprise, I felt my flush, my face flush several times as we spoke, my stomach fluttered and I started having trouble concentrating. Okay. I realized I was wrong. Clearly I'm attracted to him. We parted an hour later. After that, I agreed to go out on a date with him again. I headed home intrigued. I walked to my apartment, dropped my keys on the floor and threw up and spent the next seven days in bed with the flu. The same neural um, process of construction that simulates a bee from blobs also constructs feeling of attraction from a fluttering stomach and a flushed face. An emotion in your brain, an emotion is your brain's creation of what your body sensations mean in relation to what's going on around you in the world. I call this explanation the theory of constructed emotion. So it's it's relatable because we can understand that feeling of like in our stomach, mm. there's something wrong. And then whether it's going on a date or someone walks into the room or... Um, a relevant example would be now like it's very hot. And so when it's hot, you think, okay, like, oh man, I'm so frustrated. But actually, no, it might just be that it's hot. And then your brain is predicting that you, because of the, the, your body and, and that internal feeling, your brain brain is predicting that you must be feeling frustrated or irritable or something like that. But actually, it's just heat and you you are confusing the two oh. um yeah in a nutshell that is what i was trying to explain like the whole for how it was like that whole experience of like 
oh, just because I'm feeling a little different now in this person's presence, then it might be, um, it must be that I'm attracted to them, but in turn, they're actually sick. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's another very helpful example. Mm. Um, okay, then uh, lastly, just before you move on, just mm. if you go further, there's just that little section um, on page 31 where it says, in every waking moment, your brain uses past experience organized as concept to guide your actions and give your sensations meaning. When the concepts involved are emotion concepts, your brain constructs instances of emotions. Mm. So that was just after that section you, you read, uh, that was like a follow-up. Uh, section that she added um, yeah. which is what we were talking about before that um, more like the new age view of emotions is more that it comes from past experiences so essentially you your emotions or thoughts or for you to identify them and we've spoken this before is that you have a prediction of this is what what I'm thinking or this is how I'm feeling. And then if it's wrong, then whatever input that comes in, help, it's helpful to correct you that when the next time you feel that way, then you're able to predict and correctly predict how you, what accurate, emotion yeah. it is and what you're, what you're feeling. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so then going on to the last part is that social... Um, idea so inborn and universal versus social reality so she touches on this in in this way Um, on page 38 it says the final major assumption in the classical view is that certain emotions are inborn and universal all healthy people around the world are supposed to display them and recognize them the theory of constructed emotion, in contrast, proposes that emotions are not inborn, and if they are universal, it's due to shared concepts. Uni- uh, what is universal is the ability to form concepts that make our physical sensations meaning- meaningful. From the Western concept sadness to the Dutch concept gezellig, uh, which uh, is a specific experience of comfort with friends, which has no exact translation in English. So, yeah, we we use these these words to construct these instances of emotion. Um, yeah. And then she goes on to say on the next page, 39, social reality is not just about words. It gets under your skin. If you perceive the uh, same baked good as a decent cupcake or a healthy muffin, research suggests that your body metabolizes it differently. Likewise, the words and concepts of your culture help you to shape your brain wiring and your physical changes in during emotion. So yeah, it's all of these things have um, ramifications, well, I guess. <laughs> I mean, on the same page, thirty-nine, I think at the top there talks about the muffin cup, uh, cup cupcake distinction is a social reality yeah you know that essentially they're all made through a similar process uh but it's just by saying one's a cupcake one's a muffin then one's like a breakfast food and one's a dessert mm. <laughs> that's how she even though i think some cultures have cupcakes for breakfast uh, 
<laughs> because it's basically just muffins with a different word. Yeah, I'm not a, a baker, but I mean, it, it seems like they are pretty much the same ingredients and they just like maybe packaged differently or things. But it's wild to think that if they were the same ingredients and you your body actually metabolizes them differently based off of your understanding of it, yeah. which I guess as you start to understand more of the whole prediction thing kind of makes sense because your, your, your brain, it's not just emotions that are predicted like we were saying. It's your visual input and all those kind of things like with the B is it's all predictions. And so therefore, if your brain is doing these predictions, when you see a muffin versus a cupcake, the cupcake you imagine as having far more sugar or this or that and and being more unhealthy and the muffin you you view as being more healthy and so your brain will have different predictions for them and so you will your brain will prep your metabolism in different ways yeah. um yeah prediction all the way down <laughs> okay should we go on to the next part yeah so we've now, kind of got a general basis for um, the different things that we'll discuss. And so, this next section is the next main section. So, that was the general part. Now, it's how feelings work and how emotions are made. So, in this research, she, she distinguishes between feelings and emotions. So, feelings are more um, inbuilt. Um, they, and they're much less... Um, yeah, let me maybe explain them and then I will dig into that. So, or um, well actually, no, let me, let's start at the beginning and then we can, we can go forward. Um, but, but in summary, our feelings are more, um, uh, they, they're not as um, socially constructed. They're more just how we feel oh. like it's um, good or bad kind of thing. Um, and then emotions are more categories of different um, complex feelings of body states and, and that. Okay, so first off, um, she says, yeah, brain, reg brain regions were thought to be primarily reactive, spending most of their time dormant and awaking to fire only when stimulus arrives from the outside world. The stimulus response view is simple and intuitive. And in fact, neurons in your muscles work this way. Um, lying still and unstimulated and then firing to make a cell response. So scientists assume that neurons in our brain operate the same way. So if we look at muscles, it is that reactive thing. But like we've been saying, um, we're starting to see that it's not the same for emotions. And then... Um, she says on page 59, through prediction, your brain constructs the world you experience. Well, she says, prediction is such a fundamental activity of the human brain that some scientists consider it the brain's primary mode of operation. Um, yeah. So an interesting idea that, that like we've been saying the, from the visual to the um, sensory to the um, way that your metabolism Ooh. works to the um, to the way that your emotions are constructed, 
it's predictive. Yeah. Um, and many scientists seemingly will will take that view nowadays. Um, and then um, she goes on to comment along the lines of sometimes those predictions do go right. They're not always perfect. Yeah. So she says here on page 62, you might think that your predictions of the world are driven by events in the world, but really they are anchored in your predictions, which are then tested against those little skipping stones of incoming sensory input. Um, the reason she says that is just like mentioned earlier, your your brain's default mode is prediction. Yeah. So when there's a, an error in the prediction, then which is a discrepancy between the input and what you predicted, then that is a small little, what she says here, skipping stone. Because normally these prediction errors are very small. Yeah. Like if you think about um, looking in, out into the world, you, when you look around, most of the stuff remains the same yeah. so your brain can predict and has a baseline essentially of what it needs to see exactly yeah. yeah and then when something comes bam out of the corner of your eye then that's the the thing that will be like oh, okay there's a the change there and then um it if it was a surprising thing it probably didn't pr predict it um, i was actually thinking about when i was reading that section was it reminded me or i was just like my my commute to work and back. I was like, probably, because I've done it probably now, I mean, two years almost yeah. every day. It's like, I was like, oh, that actually makes sense, is that whatever building or house or whatnot pretty much is not me processing new information. Yeah. But the different vehicles that go past, it's like, oh, the, probably it would be like, oh, yesterday... You had no obstruction view to the house, but now you can't see the house fully yeah. because there's this vehicle. And then you're like, let's adjust. What is it that's different now? Then that's when you can see the vehicle person. Yeah. And, and it's what you're saying that, you know, you might use the same route every day. Then next minute, bam, something jumps out at you. And you're, then your brain, like, instead of you, let's say you had taken a turn to your place, you know, now then you don't take that same turn or mm. you have to avoid whatever just well, there's out. a block that's blocking mm. the way from the turn that you normally take and things like that yeah but yeah it's amazing to think like when you if you take a long trip or something that you take frequently like okay, your trip to work is short but, sure. <laughs> but your that brain that time just sort of disappears mm. and it most likely is in part due to that prediction mm. it's just your brain is just carrying on mm. it's like cool i know what's happening here no worries just keep on mm. going and then it's only if you see like I don't know a massive yeah. yellow truck on like coming head towards you, mm. then you're like oh flip, mm. and your brain starts to say okay that's a prediction error I did not expect that yeah um and then it starts to adjust body budgets and, mm. and yeah and I mean not only that like that also for me was like oh is that why a new trip this is for me I don't know about you I know you don't like traveling as much as I do but. A new route is always very exciting for me. Mm. Like, I'll, unless I'm, like, really tired or not feeling well, if I'm going somewhere for the first time, I won't sleep. Like, yeah. I'll try and absorb every... And it's, like, so into it because it's, like, everything is very new. Like, I've yeah. never seen before, you know, up until you've done the, um, the trip one or two times and you're like, oh, okay, I'm used to this. But mm. usually my first 
It's a thrill. Yeah, it's like, you know, the kid receiving candy at every turn. You know, my brain's firing. Which makes sense now. Mm. Because it's like, there's nothing for me to predict. It's like, I'm... Well, there's receiving. Yeah. You are there's nothing for you to correct cor- in your prediction. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're receiving a stream of information, or at every angle you're correcting because all your predictions are likely going to be wrong. Oh yeah, yeah. If it's a new experience, <laughs> it's yeah. a new experience. Yeah. Whereas day to day, there's nothing for mm. new for you to predict. So there's yeah. no luck like, learning or changing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, and it's. I think. As you as we start to discuss these things, I think you can start to see more and more her case for why emotions are constructed. Mm. Um, yeah, within yourself as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, and okay, so so reading that again, you might think that your perceptions of the world are driven by events in the world, but really they are anchored in your predictions. When you then test those predictions against the stipping, skipping stones of incoming sensory input, through prediction and correction, your brain continuously creates and revises the mental model of the world, your mental model of the world. But predictions aren't always correct. She gives an example sentence here. Once upon a time in a magical, far, in a magical kingdom far beyond the most distant mountains, there lived a beautiful princess who bled to death. Um, did you find that she says did you find that last three words unexpected those last three words unexpected that's because your brain predicted incorrectly based on its stored knowledge of fairy tales it made a prediction area and then adjusted its prediction in the blink of an eye to obviously learn um, what it should predict Mm. in the future and most likely that kind of a sentence won't happen frequently and so that prediction will that that change will sort of fade away because it will be rewritten by normal um, stories. But yeah, that's a little sample of prediction error. Uh, But just before you move on that, mm. uh, that figure on page 63 was actually very interesting. Just just sort of like a map for yourself to be like, it all starts with Mm. prediction. You simulate the prediction, compare with, what's coming in and then resolve the error and then the cycle continues you know yeah. that's yeah the i think for me yeah that was quite of interesting um, yeah uh, image and it's um it's something where um that is happening super super quickly yeah uh, all the time mm. um, which is yeah very interesting. Yeah, and I think earlier we uh, um, we spoke about um, that whole example of being having a baseball thrown at you. You know, if you had to react the moment oh, yeah, you see the position of the ball to, to catch it, you you'd never get to catch a ball. You know, but just from the way um, the ball launches out from. Um, the guy throwing it, then you predict where the ball might be, then you put your hand there to, ex- to expect the ball there to catch it, then, you know, it's through that hole that you predicted that the ball would be there and in turn yeah. be able to catch it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, if we, if we didn't have prediction, we wouldn't be able to catch it mm. because it happens too quickly. Yeah, you'd react to the position and be like, oh, the ball is there, let me catch it, then every single time you'd be too slow to actually catch yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. All of these things sort of pointing towards that that construction idea. Mm. 
Um, so then uh, this is the, the affect part. So understanding what affect is, um, and affect is what we used the word for f of feelings earlier. So to dig into that, um, in scientific terms, affect comes in two states. And again, remember, affect is how you feel. Comes in two states. So there's, or you can think about an X and a Y axis. On the X axis, you maybe put valence. And valence is basically either pleasant or unpleasant. And then on the Y axis, you can put arousal, which is a, a scientific term. And it means either calm or agitated. So those are the two extremes. So you can think of it as like these four different states and you can be in combinations of them. Mm -hmm. So you can have, um, you can be pleasant, you can have pleasant valence and um, your arousal state can be calm or you can have unpleasant and then you sort of middle between um, calm and agitated or you can be um it would be interesting, but um, you could be calm and unpleasant. Um, so, yeah, there's all these different states. That's unlikely, an unlikely one. But the important thing is that when you think of affect, you can think of very low granularity feeling where you're either feeling pleasant or unpleasant and you're feeling calm or agitated. Oh. That's the, the state. And... Then the, the, the next part of the puzzle is this idea of interoception. So interoception is the sensation you have from inside. So intro, inside, interoception. And interoception along with affect are kind of... If, just fairly standard things that that we have and lots of animals have as well, where um, our body is in a certain state and maybe our stomach is sore and therefore we feel unpleasant. Oh. Or we um, just found a chocolate and so we feel pleasant. Uh, or we are relaxing on the couch and we feel calm. Um, maybe it would be calm and pleasant. Um, yeah, so there's these different states, but, um, that's feeling and then <coughs> the intrinsic, um, circuitry in our brains helps us to understand what we are currently feeling. Um, yeah. So, oh, I bumped the mark there, but does that kind of make a bit of sense? It was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> It is a lot, um, but yeah, it's. I think the intrinsic also goes to, like gut feel. I think yes, that was just yeah, that's a good else. way of putting so, it. Yeah, um, and then your affect is more like your your normal state at which you're at, mm. and then depending on whether something happens, how it then deviates from that. So like that whole. Thing is talking about the mid arousal, high arousal, and mm. you, you, instead of affect, you're supposed to be in the default in the middle, and then as you're going through, then 
that then changes to see in which quadrant you actually fall in. Yeah, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant pleasant and, and calm or aroused. Uh, yeah. 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 Um so so hopefully um that kind of makes sense because that it obviously does a lot. Yeah. yeah it it obviously builds we build on the idea of feeling or she builds on the idea of feelings to get to emotions. emotions yeah. So emotion so emotions are different in that they are more categorizing of um various different feelings. parts of like feelings and brain states and and all kinds of things. Um Whereas feelings are just like, are we feeling good or bad? Mm, yeah. Um, so it's this. I'll loosely use it as state. So the state in which you are in, which is how you're feeling, you can be categorized. And those categories within those different feelings are what emotions are, essentially. Mm. So one emotion can map to a different set of feelings. Uh, but yeah, the causes of those feelings may be very different. Mm. Um, like what you said, like happiness for one. You, it's, but what causes you, or the feelings that make you happy can vary from like receiving a chocolate to you, seeing mm. your partner but yeah. at the end result you feel happy but it's it's how you feel in the situation that then maps back to what emotion you're feeling or what emotion state you're in yeah, yeah. i think and where it gets kind of confusing is that we often use the word feeling yeah, and emotion, emotion yeah which i just did um, now where, yeah which is fine i think in general words and then but when she's talking about it it's like two different things yeah. where that the uh, feeling is that just pleasant or unpleasant mm. um aroused or calm or what's it aroused or what's the other word for it um but it, it doesn't really yeah. matter too much but yeah feelings is that and then emotions is that more complicated uh, version mm. um so but another thing that she's she builds towards is and we've spoken about it a bit but i don't think we've really given a definition of it is body budget so I think it kind of intuitively the words say what it is, but just to give it a definition, the idea of body budget is essentially a metaphor to describe how the brain manages resources, the resources of the body. The brain acts like a financial manager who constantly makes deposits and withdrawals to and from different uh, body systems to keep everything running smoothly. So um, a deposit into your body budget could be something like um, your uh, dad comes home with chocolates and you're like, yes, this is exciting. And that is like a deposit. It adds to your body budget. You have more energy now. You, um, yeah. So whereas in contrast, if something happens, whether it's um, something very small, like you stub your toe or whether it's something big, like you lose a family member, that then affects your body budget as well stubbing your toe now all of a sudden your body needs to start dedicating resources to say okay well um let's uh make sure that the bleeding stops let's make sure that um or i suppose that kind of uh, just happens but i think you get the idea 
um, and now you have to start looking after it and you want to be aware of it and, and things like that. And so it dedicates resources towards that where, um, and that's the sort of idea of a withdrawal from the body budget. So then to tie some of these concepts together, so we've spoken about affect, which is essentially just how you feel, um, and interoception, which is the, the internal feeling that you have, and then the body budget. And so she says here on page 73, interoception did not evolve for you to have feelings, but to regulate your body budget. So interoception, the, the way that your body is able to feel how it's, or able to understand how it's, the internal state is, that um, is there for regulating your body budget. And your, effect, your effective feelings of pleasure or displeasure and calmness or agitation are simple summaries of your body budget state. So affects and body budget are very closely related because if you are feeling good or you are feeling bad, then if you're feeling good, it means your body budget is, is in a good state mm -hmm. because that the, the feeling that you have there, the affect is a summary of your body budget. It's a very high level summary. That That's why she constantly says that that's not, or she doesn't say it, but implies that that's not emotion. It's just a summary oh. of a certain state of your body, good or bad, um, and agitated or calm. And so just to reread that, interception did not evolve for you to have feelings, but to regulate your body budget. And your affective feelings of pleasure or displeasure, calmness or agitation are simple summaries of your body budget state. Um, yeah, I think it's very helpful to, to understand. But yeah. Uh, I don't know if you have any comments there or... No, no. Okay. Then a last thing with dealing with affect is an interesting idea called affective realism or to put it in a different wording, feeling something and then making the mistake of thinking it's real. So affective realism, feeling, change the words, feeling realism. Um, and she gives a, a good example here. So she says on page 74, Affect has far-reaching consequences beyond simple feeling. The subject of a, um, this exact situation was the subject of a t uh, 2011 study of judges. Scientists in Israel found that judges were significantly more likely to deny parole to a prisoner if the hearing was just before lunchtime. The judges experienced their interoceptive sensations not as hunger, but as evidence for their parole decision. Immediately after lunch, the judges began granting paroles with a customary frequency. So, the same idea as when she was going on that date think, and she yeah. mispredicted what um, she was feeling. It can happen that judges and we were saying that we had seen this in a previous Ooh, book, book as well. Yeah. But this is a different perspective on the same problem. That the way that you feel can affect your predictions 
and not just emotion predictions or, or that, although this has to do with emotions because it's the, the judges in a sense saying that they, they're not saying that they're hungry. They're saying that they are feeling unpleasant. Mm. And so therefore they associate that unpleasant feeling mm. with the um, person on trial. Okay, and therefore they're more likely to say, um, you deserve a higher mm. sentence where straight after lunch, once they've eaten unknown to them, although it's becoming more and more known to judges unknown to them, they're, their state now, their body budget is in a better state. Mm. And so their affect, their feeling is more sort of le level or more pleasant. And so they don't have this negative almost sentiment. Mm. And so they don't project that onto other people. Yeah, I wanted to say something, but I saw you cost corrected there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I mean... It's wild. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's the whole thing of you make a prediction, but you're like, but I'm still. That's another way I'd explain it that you predict something, but you're like, no, but I'm still feeling this way. So then you're like, mm. yeah, I'm going to correct my prediction because of how I'm feeling. But what you're feeling in turn is not because of the case you're presiding, but more your internal feeling because yeah. you're hungry. Yeah. Interoceptive predictions. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, it's just to continue on with, mm. with the effective realism. Yeah, and um, sorry to no, no, stop you there. It. It's just, it's, it also then goes back to, again, I, I said, uh, when we're speaking, I said, I, I won't use this word, but I'll use it again on how Hackers refutes the classical view that not only are your, let's say, your emotions or how you feel a summation of how you see someone, but that the other factors that contribute to how you feel in or what emotions yes. you actually yeah. have. Because just in that, it would mean that people feeling hungry or feeling some type of, or even feeling ill wouldn't affect uh, people's judgments, which is in turn how they feel towards something which affects their emotion and as a result, how they would judge something mm -hmm. in the end. Um, so yeah, it's it's one way to kind of prove a case to be like, no, just because you're smiling doesn't mean that you're happy. Or just because you have a neutral face doesn't mean that you're neutral towards saying mm. there's all this sort of experiences that you've encountered that you know as a result give you the right prediction or mm. identify the light the right emotion yeah yeah, yeah it's there's a funny thing that she says which is that um be, because of all of these different variations and predictions and things like that she says that for medical if you go i mean not for medical if you're going for an interview that if it's a sunny day then that's when you should go for your interviews because people feel better on sunny days <laughs> and normally people feel worse on like dreary yeah. rainy days um and so if you yeah it's just funny how like 
it affects the the world around us and what we how we act. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I know I'm going off a tangent, but uh, I mean, I remember chatting with a colleague before about that. That it's just the same as how um, human satisfaction actually is in terms of um, work. Uh, so people's satisfaction satisfaction at work is actually higher in summer than it is in winter. Yeah. And yeah, it's, which I mean makes sense it's in n- this light. Mm, it's not in this light. <laughs> <laughs> Unintentional. <laughs> but yeah, um it just ties into what you said. I'd mm. rather go for an interview on a sunny day than yeah, uh, on a gloomy make sure uh, you rainy day. on a sunny day. <laughs> yeah. Um so the the next part is um, just discussing a little bit more about uh, body budget. So on page 77, uh, she says, yeah, your body budgeting regions are mostly like a deaf scientist. They make predictions, but they have a hard time listening to incoming evidence. So then she gives a, a further example. Um, when you make big, bo- uh, when you make a big deposit or withdrawal from your body budget, eating, exercising, injuring yourself, you might have to wait long for your brain to catch up. Marathon runners learn this. They feel agitated early in the race when their body budget is still solvent, i.e. they um, still have... So they can still go on running for a while, but they start off running and then they still feel very agitated. Um, But they keep on running until the unpleasant feeling goes away. They They ignore the affective realism that insists that they are out of energy. So they're, because um, our body budget is slightly delayed in in its... Um, so it makes predictions and then it kind of sort of is like, cool, like, these are my predictions. Oh. And um, because of that, we can have a mismatch between how we're actually feeling and how um, we should feel based on our, our actual state um and so runners like she's saying learn this if i just keep on pushing my body will be like okay it's actually is fine like it's not a problem um and the same thing with eating if you eat very quickly it takes a bit of time for your body budget to catch or your predictions say that you need to keep eating Eating, but you can actually stop Mm. because actually if you give yourself your body budget a bit of time to sort of catch up yeah. with the state well, of reality 20 minutes yeah so i probably need to have 20 <laughs> minutes before your second serve and i was like oh i'll be damned yeah. <laughs> so i think it's yeah um what you fail uh she says um you feel what your brain believes affect primarily comes from prediction Uh, Now you know that the same is true for most feelings you've experienced in your life. Even the feeling of the pulse on your wrist is a simulation constructed in the sensory regions of your brain and corrected by sensory input. That was wild to me. Like you put your hand, your finger on your wrist. You aren't actually feeling directly like in the way that we normally think. You are predicting what you're going to feel. Then, over time, it will very quickly, okay, yeah. as she said before, correct those predictions. I was going to say, maybe that's, that's even why, like, 
I mean, maybe even I experienced this though. Like growing up when they're like feel past, I would, I would never actually feel anything. Mm. Yeah. Like it could just be that could you're have not feeling like, in the right place. <laughs> I could have also could have been a prediction error. It could but, have been uh, that I also had a lot of padding around my career. So <laughs> <laughs> in my case, that probably was the case. Yeah. But uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um. Okay, so so that's um, the the concept of feelings and affect and the different parts of it and and cool. body budgets and that. So we've we've dealt with feelings and affect, and now we're going to look at emotions and categories. Cool. Uh, sometimes she says categories and concepts. Um, there might be a distinction. There probably is a slight distinction between them, but for our purposes, we're going to pretend that there is. Mm. Um, so. First of all, we are constantly categorizing things. Oh. So the cool example on 84 is the rainbow. So um, there's two rain pictures of two different rainbows. The rainbow, how we see it, and the rainbow, how it, how it kind of more actually is. Oh. So when we look at a rainbow, we normally see a bunch of distinct colors oh. Or p- fairly distinct colors. Maybe we don't see them as absolutely mm. distinct, but like in general, most people see them as pretty distinct. You can separate them and say. Yeah, exactly. And we normally see about six. I can't even remember the colors. Like I don't know, green and blue and yellow and red and things. Um, but we see these distinct colors. But actually, in reality, the rainbow isn't a isn't isn't distinct, distinct bands. It's actually a spectrum. Exactly. It's like a continuous spectrum. But because we have very ingrained in our, in our like general knowledge, the idea of red is a very distinct color, we then perceive that band, which is actually like, go, it's ranging from it's red through all different colors until it reaches like a more orangey or whatever. And mm. um, that those are all actually completely distinct color, colors, okay. but we or yeah, different frequencies, different frequencies. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a The scientist in you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Um, they're all different frequencies, and in theory, we should categorize each frequency, frequency as its own. As its own, but we can't do that because oh. there's too many. Oh. So we do something that's useful, as humans do. We use words to group oh. things together or group them right? um and th- we say this is red, red when it's actually a whole spectrum uh, of wavelengths <laughs> <laughs> varying frequencies of wavelengths. <laughs> um, use me please <laughs> <laughs> and and so when we look we see um those distinct colors which oh. yeah and this ties very well and into- i mean what was interesting was then which she added on to be like for instance, in Russia, sky blue and dark blue are seen as two separate colors. Mm. And as a result, the rainbow has seven as opposed to the six that, yeah. you know. I mean, yeah, because they, they have, it's not light and dark. Mm. It's distinct colors mm. to, to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Um, okay, so... Then she says here on fifty on eighty five, all sensory information is a massive, constantly changing puzzle for your brain to solve. And then she goes on to say 
to achieve this magnificent feat, your brain employs concepts or what we sometimes will refer to as categories to make the sensory signals meaningful, creating an explanation for where they came from, what they refer to in the world and how to act on them. Your predictions are so vivid and immediate that they compel you to believe you experience the world as it is when actually you experience a world of your own construction, i.e. prediction. When you categorize using concepts, you go beyond the information that's available, just as you did when you perceived the bee within the blobs. Yeah. And then she says a little bit further down, categorization is business as usual for the brain, and it explains how emotions are made without needing fingerprints. To maybe throw a little bit of LLM talk and chat GPT in there, um, so our brains are extremely efficient at um, predicting things and they run on far less resources than um, than computers do. And I think ChatGPT and those kind of things are quite good at categorizing things. But um, I think one of the things, and whether this is different from, from them or not, I'm not sure. But one of the things that makes our brains extremely efficient is the fact that we can use categorization. Um to process and if we didn't just imagine like just look at it um, if you look at the real world that we don't really have the concept of pixels so just to use an easy example if you imagine a tv there are millions of pixels on a tv like a standard hd tv or 4k tv so standard hd tv is what it's roughly it's 180 by 1920 which is my maths is terrible. Let's say 2 million pixels, okay? So, 2 million pixels. Imagine your brain needed to individually say, this pixel is like this, this pixel is like this, this pixel is like this. It would take so much processing. Mm. And so, instead, what we do is we group things together. Um, the example that she uses is uh, you go into a store and you walking through the vegetable aisle or um, the fresh fruits aisle and you see an apple, you know that there's an apple there. And so your brain can predict the concept of an apple. It doesn't have to go and render out mm. individual apples and all of that stuff. As soon as you turn your focus towards there, maybe the predictions start becoming more real. But for this, for your peripheral vision, it's probably sufficient just to predict that there's, an there's apple. probably an apple there. Um, and it's red. It's not a trillion frequency spectrum thing uh, of red. It might actually be brown. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Based on your culture, <laughs> just explain that comment. It's a good one. No, like just because we perceive colors differently, so it might be a different shade of red. That it's not entirely solid red, but she mentioned that. Just because of how the light's hitting on, on the apple and the anger reflects your eye. So the proper red, but might actually be brownish in color. So. But also she mentions that thing about the there's a culture, I can't remember what it is, but there's a culture that doesn't have a concept for red. And yeah. so they perceive, because red is, is in many ways close to brown. Mm. Oh, yes, and yeah. so there's a culture that literally doesn't perceive mm. red mm. as red. They perceive it as brown. Right, yeah. Um, which is also like just another thing to yeah, add to yeah. the list of things mm. for prediction. 
um, and and the idea of categorization. Um, okay, so then going on, uh, let me just turn over the page here. Yeah. There's way too many things. Okay, so um, there's the concept of uh, Schadenfreude. Mm -hmm. um, so concept learning doesn't stop in childhood; it continues throughout life. Sometimes the new a new emotion word appears in your primary language. Um, engineering a new concept. For example, Schadenfreude in, is a German word meaning pleasure from someone else's misfortune. So, in summary, it's not we to continue building the case. We aren't born with these mm. emotions and understanding of emotions. We learn them over time. Normally, we learn most of our general emotion concepts from very young. But sometimes later in life, because they aren't just inborn, um, we can actually learn new emotion concepts. Oh. And Schadenfreude is one of them. And so Germans, not so we we might say, um, yeah, I'm feeling pleasure, uh, and I'm pleasure at that person's misfortune, oh. which is a weird thing to say. But and uh, sorry, which she kind of said that that's not socially acceptable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's one thing you need to add. That's why it's like a uh, scapegoat. It's more. funny, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we, we in, in English, we would, okay, sometimes people use the word schadenfreude. Apparently in her context, it's more common. Yeah. Um, but, so, and she's, I think she's English. Um, but we we would use words like full sentences and whereas in German, they use oh. Schadenfreude as, as a word and therefore their brains can actually predict based off of Schadenfreude because okay, it's yeah. a concept that they understand oh. as a single thing rather than a whole collection of things. Yeah. Um, For instance... Remember the whole idea of uh, emotions are... Uh, what's it... Um, the word that she uses uh, diverse populations um, of perceptions or of of, oh. of feelings so you have lots of different feelings and they all categorize into one, one yeah. the whole idea of degeneracy that mm. weird word that sounds like you it's talking about someone that's degenerate but actually it's talking about that many to one relationship i mean even that it's the same <clears throat> like um i think she measures when you order in pizza mm. you don't say you don't call your pizza place and say i want to order road door with tomato base cheese and some meats on top mm. you know uh you we have a word for you to say that's pizza yeah um yeah yeah that's a good one we we don't explain everything yeah we just have these concepts and they make sense to us and that's it's very they useful. are word representative of certain concepts yeah, yeah. yeah. um okay so then concepts and predictions how do they relate to one another is another question. And on page 118, she addresses it. So she says, the two phenomena I've been discussing are actually one and the same. I'm speaking of concepts and predictions. 
When your brain constructs an instance of a concept such as happiness, it's equivalent to saying your brain issues a prediction of happiness. Which, yeah. So, the the concepts that we use are the things that we use to predict. And so, they are basically the same thing. The, the concept of Apple is the thing that we use to predict Apple. Um, yeah. You put it like that, or when I put it like that, I think it makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. Then, continuing on with this idea of categorization, is um, when we look at at different categories of things. Remember, the classical view would say sadness is a single thing. Whereas the constructed view is like, well, it's more related to your experience and like what you've been taught when, like when people say the word happiness or schadenfreude or whatever, like what are the things that you associate with that? Because that's what you will predict because that's your learned experience. Um, And so when looking at that, she uses the, to sort of clear that up, she uses the idea of flowers and weeds. So we naturally look at things and we say, that's a flower or that's a weed. And we think that normally those things are very clearly distinct. Think, yeah. But re- in reality, um, for example, daisies might not be, um, daisies can be considered flowers, but also in certain circumstances, they can be pestilent and they can be taking over a garden, oh. in which case the person would consider them a weed. Oh, yeah. And so she has a fun story here. If you doubt the power, it's on 131. If you doubt the power of, if you doubt your power as a conjurer of reality, uh, look at this figure. So it's just a, a figure of a Queen Annie's lace, which is a flower or a weed. <laughs> um, this plant is. I don't know, she says some scientific name, better known as Annie's, as Queen Annie's Lace. Usually the outer blooms are white, but in rare cases, they are pink. They reflect the light, the way, they reflect a wavelength that people in my culture experience as pink. <laughs> she would be very proud, Peter. <laughs> um, my friend Kevin once went to extraordinary lengths to purchase a pink Queen Annie's Lace, which he planted proudly in the center of his garden. One day, he and I were having tea in his yard, and another friend stopped by. Kevin and I popped inside to get some tea, um, to get some tea for her. We returned just in time to watch the friend shake her head, stoop with deafness born of decades of experience, rip the Queen Annie's lace out from the ground, and rip the Queen Annie's lace out from the ground. Nothing in the natural world indicates whether a plant is definitively a flower or a weed. A Queen Annie's lace to, um, is a flower to Kevin, but a weed to his friend. The distinction depends on the perceiver. And she says a little bit further down, emotions are real, but real in the same manner of the sound of the falling of a tree, the experience of red, and the distinction between flowers and, re- and weeds. They are all constructed in the brain of a perceiver. Yeah. Hectic. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we go on to um, 
some ideas of social reality. Yep. So, 134, emotions are social reality. We construct instances of emotion in the same sense, in the same manner as colors, falling trees, and money, using a conceptual system that is realized within the brain's wiring. Um, So, she's just kind of building on that case of um, emotions are something that it's categories and the categories are learnt and the learnt categories are learnt in social environments mm. and therefore what we perceive is not real reality it's a social reality social construct because an apple there's no such this is getting a little bit uh, philosophical <laughs> but there's no such thing as an apple um, it's a categorization that's useful to us. Um, And we call it Apple. And so in that sense, it is real. But in the sense of there's a red apple, there's no red. uh, In the the sense of Apple, there's just lots of little particles of things and stuff. So, But I mean that... Put together... (laughs) Someone can uh, definitely (laughs) debate that. So... Maybe don't hold on to that idea too tightly. I can assist you down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they, they, uh, there's that example that you uh, used as the pizza thing, which Ooh. is a, a really helpful example. We don't just go and say um, dough, this and dough. that, uh, cheese, and <laughs> yeah. um, we just say pizza. Um, because pizza is a social reality that we all understand. Sad, yeah. Um, Then on page 141, this brings us to one of the most challenging ideas in the book. You need an emotion concept in order to experience or perceive the associated emotion. Going to the next page, some scientists argue that without an emotion concept, an emotion still exists, but the affected person doesn't realize it, implying the state of emotion outside of consciousness. Just yes, to stop you, it was what I was also trying to explain. About <laughs> <laughs> someone losing someone, but you've never lost someone. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't know up until you've... Until you have the concept, yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. feel it, but you... It can be anything that people throw at you up until... it's. In this case, a social contract to say if you've lost someone, then this is the emotion you feel. And, yeah. yeah, and and um, to, to just to re say what I said earlier, because now hopefully the idea of a budget body budget makes a little bit mm. more sense. When you experience that the first time, you your predictions are off, mm. and so your body budget goes out of whack, mm. and so you feel like really terrible and stuff like that. And then um, once you have more experience with that, even though it's a very sad and weird thing to to have experience with, but once you have more experience with with it, most likely your predictions will be more accurate and therefore most likely your body budget won't be so far out of whack because you're better at predicting like what the state of things are going to be after that. But yeah... Um, so she says, some scientists argue that without emotion concept, an emotion still exists, but the affected person doesn't realize it, implying the state of emotion, implying a state of emotion outside of consciousness. I suppose this is a possibility, but I doubt it. 
If you had no concept of flower and someone showed you a rose, you'd experience only a plant, not a flower. No scientists would claim that you're seeing a flower just because you don't realize it. Some, similarly, the blobby image in chapter 2 doesn't have a hidden bee in it. You perceive the bee only because of conceptual knowledge. The same reasoning applies to emotions. Without the concept of, um, and she uses a few different emotion words, like sadness, and then she has one that's chiplessness, uh, which is one that she defines earlier as oh. sort of a joke and sort of not. Uh, that feeling where you don't have chips <laughs> <laughs> to categorize with. If you don't have those concepts to categorize with, there is no emotion, only a pattern of signals. Um, and then a little bit further down, you can predict only with the concepts you possess. Yeah. That's the, the thing that you were saying earlier. All right. Um, then there are some ideas for just different cultures and the social experience and that. And she says on page 148, if you found these ideas challenging, try this one. <laughs> some cherished Western emotion concepts are completely absent in other cultures. It Eskimos have no concept of anger. The Tahitians have no concept of sadness. This last item is difficult for Westerners to accept. Life without sadness, really. <laughs> when Tahitians are in a situation that, Western, that a Westerner would describe as sad, they feel ill, troubled, fatigued, or unenthusiastic, all of which are covered by their broader term, papea. So... I'm not even going to try and defend her argument there because I think it's really difficult to be like, okay, I think I really get that. Mm. But the important part is to see that what she's saying is the way that we categorize things, our understanding of the world based on the categories we've learned not only informs us on an intellectual level of like, oh, okay, this is sadness or this isn't sadness. It, inf it actually allows us to feel certain things. Whoa. So when she's saying that they don't feel sadness, she's not saying that they don't have some bodily sensations oh, that we would be like, oh, okay, that's kind of similar to sadness. But she's saying that the experience that they have is different. It's not what we would be like. That's what we feel when we're sad. It's, yeah. I was going to just <laughs> change something you said. It's okay. not that they don't have the feeling. <clears throat> I, mm. <laughs> they don't have the concept. Yeah. <laughs> you got me. You got, I, was, I was checking. I was testing you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's helpful to clear that up. Yeah. Yeah. It's the concept that they don't have. So they feel some odd way, which they do say. They feel unpleasant. They feel unpleasant. Exactly, yeah. But to them, they don't then say this unpleasant nature is sadness. Yeah. But it's not just that they don't say that it is sadness. It's that the way that their brain is able to predict is different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so their predictions are different. And In the way that they maybe... Sorry, go for it. No, in other words, sadness just doesn't exist in their construct. Yeah. 
Yeah. The feeling that we say or which we identify as sadness is there within them. The feeling. The yeah, feeling is very technical. Is, yeah, yes, yeah, is yeah. there, but the way they express it to them is, has nothing to do with that. Oh, has no association to sadness is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So I, I would agree. I'd say that when when they experience this papaya, they would feel unpleasant affect. Yeah. But they... They um, then deconstruct it even further, if you may. Mm. But they... The, what they perceive, what the way that they experience the emotion mm. is different. Yeah. So it's not it's not only that they it's not like the way that we use the word feeling in normal language, mm. not in this technical sense. I I think that they do not feel sadness. They have unpleasant affect, mm. but they don't feel sadness in the the normal way that we use the term. In other words, they don't um, perceive the emotion in the same way that we do. Mm. It is a, it's a different emotion, which, which yes. has overlapping, yes, yes, yes. overlapping yes, yes. things, I, but I, not, I agree. Yeah, it's yeah, a different I agree. emotion. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I'm, I'm not, yeah, I agree. I just, I just, I could be wrong. I'm just, the, the feeling might probably be the same, but just how they express that feel or what the, what the concept of that feeling is for them is different. I I I think that Lisa would say that they would, in the normal language that we use, they would feel completely different. Not completely, but fairly different. More different than we would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, because their predictions for what it means to feel papier versus sadness, what we feel as sadness or experience as sadness, those predictions have different associations and therefore they predict differently. And so they make one feel different because they, mm. the, the intrinsic, the predictions in the intrinsic, like stomach and this kind of thing, stomach and heart and, and feeling of your skin and those predictions will be different. <laughs> I was going to say... <laughs> We actually proving that we we actually being like <laughs> very Western about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it that's why I mean I said at the beginning that I wasn't gonna we weren't gonna get into it and we did a little bit but I think it's helpful because it shows just how how nuanced it is how brainwashed and yeah how how difficult it yeah. is to get out of that the way of um being like these emotions are inborn. Um, it's really difficult. <laughs> but yeah, so that's a little snippet into if you if you read the book, you will experience very many challenges at understanding exactly what, what things are, what she's meaning by different things. Um, and I mean, I'm sure if we, if we were to reread it, like we would draw on different things. But I think the core concepts of, are of the prediction and idea and that are, are fairly solid oh. and easy to grasp. No, not easy to necessarily agree no. with, um, but they're easy to grasp when she builds a, a good case for them. Oh. Okay, so 
what does this mean for us, Peter? A last, a last part. Mm-hmm. Um, so to start off with on page 174, if your brain operates by prediction and construction and rewires itself through experience, then, there is, then it's no overstatement to say that if you change your current experiences today, you can change who you become tomorrow. I think that's something you said earlier on. But yeah, we learn things, concepts, feelings, and based on what we learn or get, uh, to use a computer science term, what we train on, um, we then predict. And we do seemingly have some say in it. We aren't like just, just people that would disagree with us, but... Seems to me we have some um, control over the world that we that we act in, um, but for the most part we are driven by this prediction loop. Um, but if we expose ourselves to different things, we can change that for better or for the, for the worse. Yeah, I don't know if you. No, no. Have any Again, there? like I said, I already went. Through like a uh, whole loop of me trying to, 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 to explain that. Uh, yeah. It, the I next book. I, I think it's, it's again, it's tiptoeing, trying to not say something that's very, you know, for people to be like, oh, I don't believe he just said that. Um, yeah. Dude. But yeah, it's like you said, you put it better than I did. <laughs> But yeah, like, if you are mindful of your experiences, then that changes you. Mm. Um, and I mean, it, I don't know, it's part of the next uh, section on uh, the master, and, uh, yeah. which kind of, like, less, like, things you do to better mm. help you that. And I mean... Again, probably I agreed because it's um, something that I like. But in addition to like exercising, good diet, and all that kind of stuff, she said, meet new people, like Mm. learn new words, like just you broadening your conceptual framework. (laughs) Just you going out there, you know, kind of, Mm. you know, and I mean, again, that's what I'm, and when I was reading, it's like something that I subconsciously say, which now kind of made sense to be like, no, like, I mean, as much as, which other people don't understand when you're like, no, coming into, moving from Malawi to South Africa, like the first few years were difficult. You know, everyone always says like, but no, like, uh, greener pastures, you know, you had better this, better that, like, as much as that was the case, your brain is still wired a certain way. Mm. Only up until the point where you unlearn and accept certain things. Or you, re- or you learn new... Um, new cultures. Yeah. Not, but yeah, you tend to accept new cultures. Mm. And, or, and which she, I think, talked about something about the... Is it like travel currents or something? Yeah, uh, um... There's a word that that uh, someone else uses, but mm. she she makes note of it in the book for I think it's acculturation or something like that. Yeah, which is 
you we underestimate what that does, but us exposing ourselves to, to different cultures and different experiences is actually better for us in mm-hmm. the long run. Yeah. You know, we have a lot more to predict from actually. We yeah. it actually helps us define our category. They're more distinct, you know, yeah. than just a whole variation, which helps you in you're in different cultures, different environments to, to better understand the people around you as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, like I said, you put it better than I was kind of just like... I think I just read. That's <laughs> yeah, all I did. <laughs> I just was like... Um, um, but yeah, um, we... Again, I'll go back to which I said earlier that we essentially create our own environments we create mm. our own realities at yeah. the end of the day so if you if you'd like to have a better environment you have to start by being positive about things and you have positive predictions yeah if you, if you may um I'm not saying it's easy uh but it's just something to be mindful of that yeah. if you're going through a certain path as again like I said in not such a good way to be like no if you have experienced something tragic or traumatic or something sad the more you ponder on that the more you utilize those networks and then Mm. you you have a path in grain which is the same as walking on grass Mm. you know if you walk on grass you know then after a long time you just start to see a path forming mm. and i think our brains are the same so if we expose ourselves to negative predictions all the time then that's the path that would be ingrained you know and then yeah it's just negative emotions that we it's a very predict. important idea that yeah yeah if if we train ourselves to predict negative emotions mm. so be it mm. it will happen it will happen <laughs> yeah mm. That's a very good one. Okay, so you've touched on a few of the things, but um, what should we do? How does this implicate or what does this mean for us? And there are um, a few things which she mentions. The one is, and she says, this is one of the most important things, is keeping your body budget in shape. Um, So she says, yeah, the most basic thing you can do is to master your emotions, in fact, is to keep your body in good shape. Remember, your interoceptive network labors day and night, issuing predictions to maintain a healthy budget. And this process is the origin of your affective feelings, pleasantness, unpleasantness, arousal, and calmness. If you want to feel good, then your brain's predictions about your heart rate, breathing, blood pressure, temperature, hormones, metabolism, and so on, must be calibrated to your body's actual needs. If they aren't, your body budget gets out of whack then you're going to feel crappy no matter what self-help tips you follow, just as a matter of which flavor of crap. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's just, you want to keep your body budget calibrated. She says that um, what you can do practically speaking to keep your predictions calibrated and what can you do practically to keep your predictions calibrated and your body budget balanced she says, I apologize if I suddenly sound like your mother, <laughs> but the road begins with eating healthfully, 
exercising and getting enough sleep. I know, I know it sounds like it's mundane or even trite, but sadly there's no substitute biologically speaking. Um, yeah, it's just the, the things that everyone says, the difficult things to do are the things that we, we need to, to do. do yeah. um, otherwise our predictions will be out of whack. Oh. I just think about like my, if I eat a chocolate or something like that, um, it just spikes your body budget. And then you maybe if you eat lots of chocolate, you're kind of expecting that oh. that's the default state. Oops, and then when you don't have the chocolate, it's body budget's like, wait, hold on a second. Oh, something's missing, yeah. But yeah. Okay. The next one, uh, you also touched on it, is the um, idea of... Um, I think it's categorizing different emotions and having a bunch of different words, uh, what she sometimes calls emotional granularity. Oh. So on page 180, she says, emotional intelligence is better categorized in terms of concepts. Suppose you knew only two emotion concepts, feeling awesome and feeling... She, she likes this word crappy <laughs> feeling crappy whenever you experience emotion or perceive someone as else as emotional you categorize only with this broad brush such a person cannot be very emotionally intelligent in contrast in contrast if you distinguish between finer meaning meanings within awesome so happy content thrilled relaxed joyful hopeful inspired prideful adoring grateful blissful and the different shades of crappy, <laughs> angry, gravitated, aggravated, alarmed, spiteful, grumpy, remorseful, gloomy, mortified, uneasy, dread-ridden, resentful, afraid, envious, woeful, melancholy. Your brain would have many more options for predicting and categorizing and perceiving emotion, um, providing you with more tools for more flexible and functional responses. Yeah. I often think of if you're sitting on the couch and I think it was something that was in a book a while back, but regardless, if you're sitting on the couch and your, um, your partner comes in and you've had, um, not great day, or maybe you didn't get a chance to eat or those kind of things. And then you, um, your partner comes in and they are, they maybe ask you to do something and you just sort of like, oh man, I really don't want to oh. do this. You, your prediction of what the situation is, is you maybe are annoyed at that person oh. or you're frustrated or you, um, yeah, you, you have this experience. And if you don't have granularity in your emotion concepts, then you can't do things like say, I am feeling hungry. Not that that's necessarily an emotion concept, but I'm, I'm feeling hungry or um, I'm feeling, I can't think of a good word because I, I, I don't have emotional <laughs> granularity. <laughs> well, I, I get you. Try to express to them that, so that you're mad at them, but it's just that you're hungry, that you're feeling that way, or yeah. you're reacting that way. Yeah, yeah. Or you've had a, a difficult day, 
And so you are agitated from your day and therefore you feel you maybe are presenting as if you're upset to them mm. when actually you, you're yeah, not. No, I, I understand that. Uh, I think I've experienced... It's the whole thing of... Um, how can I put this? Um, based on your experiences, you look at someone, you'd be like, oh, they're annoyed. And without you digging deeper to, or try to understand that, as they might be annoyed, but doesn't mean they're annoyed at me. And mm. then you just naturally thinking that, mm. oh, just because they're annoyed, they're annoyed at me. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's another aspect to it, mm. yeah. Yeah, and, and she's saying, like, if we don't have the granularity, and in, whether it's the emotion or trying to understand a situation mm. and nuances the annoyed versus annoyed at me, um, but if we don't have those it's more difficult to mm. deal with situations because you don't have as many tools. Yeah. It's like using the hammer everywhere instead of like using a drill. Um, yeah. There's only hammer where you're supposed to use a screwdriver. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that's the idea of learning new emotion words. And then the another one is recategorization. It's sort of what we touched on a little bit there, um, but it's just the idea of um, when... We feel one way, um, we can look at categorizing it differently. So the, the common one that is easy go to is you walk onto a stage and you feel very nervous. And so you can either say like, okay, I'm feeling very nervous. I'm just not a good public speaker or something Ooh. like that. Or you can be like, okay, I feel nervous because... There's lots of adrenaline in my mm. system and I'm a little bit excited and I'm a little bit worried mm. that things might go wrong. But you you don't just be like, oh, you know, I'm a nervous wreck mm. and that's the end of it. Um, it, it was, I think, uh, I think she was talking about, uh, what's that phobia called? People that are afraid of spiders. Mm. You can, and apparently it worked for weeks on end after the that was done. But it's to kind of say, understand why is it that you're afraid of spiders and mm. then you'd be like you just not saying oh spider i'm afraid of it and then that's the end of it you kind of unpack why and then say like but anyways add a positive connotation to it and then all of a sudden you see it in a different light so yeah. that's a categorization mm. of the thing yeah yeah, she says on, on page 187, when changes in movements and context fail to help you master your emotions, the next big thing is to try recategorizing how you feel. This will require some explanation. Anytime you feel miserable, it's because you're experiencing unpleasant affect due to interoceptive sensations. Your brain will dutifully predict those causes for those sensations. Perhaps you are messaging, you're getting messaging from your body like, I have a stomach ache. Or perhaps you're saying something is seriously wrong with my life. This is a distinction between discomfort and suffering. Discomfort is purely physical. Suffering is personal. Um, yeah, again, it has to go with that prediction. And then recategorization is a tool of the emotion export. The more concepts that you know and the more instances that you can construct, the more effectively you can recategorize in this ma manner to master your emotions and regulate your behavior. People who, who recategorize anxiety as excitement show similar effects with better performance and fewer case, uh, 
and fewer classic symptoms of anxiety when speaking in public and even when singing. The U.S. Marine Corps has a motto that embodies this principle. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Whenever you exercise just until you feel unpleasant and then stop, you're categorizing your physical sensations as exhaustion. You'll always exercise below your threshold, despite the health benefits of continuing. Through recategorization, however, i.e., the pain is it's pain leaving the body. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Through that recategorization, you can continue exercising and feeling better later as you reap the benefits of a stronger, healthier body. Yeah, recategorization. Um. Okay, going on to, um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on the tips and stuff like that. No. Okay. Then I think the last parts we can go through at a very high level. There's two parts that I want to read just because they're interesting. And then the the last part we can go through quick, which, so the first um, section here is understanding illness. And then the second is understanding law. So how these, this, um, con, uh, how the construction of emotions impacts those two things. Okay. So to start off with illness. So she talks about chronic pain here and chronic pain being a prediction error problem. Now I'll caveat this with, this is, she, I think says that, I I think it's this chapter. If it's not this chapter, it's another chapter, but um, this chapter is not necessarily facts that scientific studies have pointed to this this is just her speculation based off of her understandings and saying this might be the case so if this sounds ridiculous to you that's fine if it sounds like okay it makes sense or if it's helpful at thinking differently about chronic pain and depression because those are the two we're going to touch on then cool um but yeah but don't take it as this is exactly how things are um so chronic pain and prediction error. Um, so she says, yeah, and she says this in quite a factual way. Overall body sensations are categorized as pain or overall body sensations that are categorized as pain, stress, and emotions are fundamentally the same. So I don't know if she has, oh, sorry, are fundamentally the same at the level of neurons in the brain and spinal cord. So I don't know if she has information on that like research where they've found that in the brain, pain, stress, and those kind of things are all related to the same circuitry. I'm not sure, but yeah. Um, But she says here for chronic pain, how and why do so many people experience ongoing pain when their bodies appear to have no physical damage? Uh, And then she says, this is much like your experience with the blobby picture in chapter two that became B as you genuinely perceived the lines that didn't exist. Your brain ignored sensory predictions. So she's saying that it's a sensory prediction error. um, Your brain ignored sensory input, maintaining that its predictions are reality. Apply this principle to pain, and the result is a plausible model of chronic pain. Errant predictions without correction. So if, if there's always a mis... If there's always... Um, a mismatch and your brain isn't correcting it, then you will feel, you will predict that consistently. Consistently. And she's saying that it's possible, 
not necessarily in all cases, but it's possible that in some cases, if you have back pain or something like that, chronic back pain, then maybe it's actually a physically slipped disc and that's a real medical issue. Yeah. And Or maybe it's a prediction error yeah. that isn't being corrected. Um, she does add on to say it's um, one way to look at it or think mm-hmm. about it. It's like a phantom limb. Yes, phantom limb syndrome. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah, to be like amputees to experience... Um, Pain in legs that have been amputated. You yeah. Know? It's the same as, I don't know if you've, um, that mirror test uh, well. Yes. That's also one. Mm, that, that's actually a really good one. I didn't even think of that. Uh, Just explain it a tiny bit. Uh, so yeah, the mirror test is, you have a mirror, um, let's say you put your left hand on the table and then you have a mirror which sort of mimics your left hand. And You're if, right. Yeah, yeah. Your opposite hand. <laughs> Your opposite hand. Let's <laughs> just say. But if you then touch uh, the hand, the real hand, it would seem as if you're also touching your other hand. If you're looking at the mirror. At the mirror, yeah. Yeah. Because you are... You are. You, you perceive... S- see it happening. Yeah. And you make a prediction. That it's my that left that's hand happening. that's been touched, yeah. Yeah. It might, that might even be one of the like studies that they use mm. as like... This is a, another example of prediction happening. But yeah, very good point. Um, so she then says, chronic pain is uh, likely a misapplication of the concept of pain by your brain as it constructs the pain experience without injury or threat to your tissue. Chronic pain seems to be a pra- tragic case of predicting poorly and receiving misgu- misleading data from your body. Yeah. Rough. Would yeah. not wish that upon anyone. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure what you can do about it, but yeah, at least if the, the cool thing is like, this is a suggestion by her mm. and now people can start saying, okay, let's try that out and let's try and experiment on mm. that and see, and maybe it does actually help. And then you can come up with, with solutions mm. to those problems based I mean, on that theory. At the end of the chapter, I could be wrong, but she did suggest that the one thing that seems to have worked, and not that I'm endorsing this, uh, but she, she was talking about brain shock therapy in most cases mm. is the one thing that seems to kind of help in most of these chronic um, pain. Not just chronic, but most, most of the Ill, um, illnesses. So mm. it'd be chronic pain, anxiety, depression. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know much about that stuff. I know that you yeah, did say uh, that, but uh, yeah, that's what I'm is. saying. I'm not. This is just based on. Yeah, I'm also not well versed. I'm not. That. What I also don't understand for what she was saying there is, I I'm not sure how it relates to the theory of predicted emotion. What with the shock, the so, shocking of the brain. So, I could be wrong. This is how I sort of got. It's kind of. It's a quicker way of rewiring. Okay. So remember, it's like you're saying, it's predictions that are not been fed back to be like, this is an error. Mm. You know, they haven't, they're not being corrected, if you may. Yeah. So like, how do you then correct a predict? Because if the predictions happening, it means that there's a neuron that still fires that has been correct. Mm. So the only way of doing it is breaking that circuit. 
Yeah. And so see. it's it's like when that's it's happening, kind of interrupting that. Circuit. Yeah, it's like you kind of check like which part of the brain is most active when the person is in that said state, and then that's a part of the brain you intend shock to mm. kind of, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Mm. Yeah. Um. So and and this also was related to depression because mm. I think that they tried it on on depression patients yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah. So that's the chronic pain part. A, a prediction error issue where uh, there's just a prediction error, but it's not being corrected. Mm. And then depression. So she says. But most likely, depression is not just one thing. Depression, as you guessed it, is a concept. It's a population of diverse instances, which, as a caveat, is also probably why um, for depression, the medication, like one works for one person and another uh, works for yeah, another. Yeah, it stuff. did say that. that um, yeah. And again, it did say kind of, I mean, that's how she was also then differentiating depression and anxiety because depression is more of you gravitating towards past experiences mm, rumination and that yeah mm, and yet with anxiety it's more you know pretty much not correcting accordingly if you may so i think you, it's your predictions are just out of yeah like, but that's what i mean it's like the predictions are in a high stream but then you're not also cost correcting to be like because I'm experienced, for instance, mm. if you're anxious, let's say you're driving and something comes your way, you do not, you have a lot coming at you to then course correct. But since you have a lot coming through, you're a lot streaming at you, you actually then don't, you essentially send this also loosely, you then become paralyzed and not actually act mm. to whatever input is coming in. Yeah, that does uh, that's how. That's yeah. why she was like, the, that's the reason why most people can't tell the difference between depression and anxiety is because all of them have to do with predict, but it's just how you handle it. Like, um, mm. So the, the, with, with a depressive state, it's more of this is what has happened, but you don't then... How can... You don't then correct yourself out of it in the long run yeah i think so the the error correction is more um the uh, chronic pain one no but it also, the, it's it's also underlying in both of them but yeah just get yeah but the, the yeah i'll read it i mm. think she kind of touches on mm. it and then we can maybe yeah. chat a bit so Okay, the, the traditional view of depression is that negative thoughts cause negative feelings. I'm suggesting it's the other way around. Your feelings right now drive your next thought as well as your perceptions as predictions. So a depressed brain relentlessly keeps making withdrawals from the budget, the body budget, basing its predictions on similar withdrawals from the past. So it's the way that she says it, maybe she says it a bit later, but it's basically that the brain is stuck in the, in the past. past yeah. So you, it, yeah, it's stuck in the past. And then she says, in effect, you're locked into a cycle of uncorrected predictions trapped in an adverse past where your moderate, where your metabolic needs were high. So if something went wrong, 
let's to use the the death and um, idea again so someone dies and you go into a state of depression what she's saying is possibly happening there is you you had this situation that happened and your predictions were out of whack and so your body budget just got misaligned and then you ended up seeing like okay well next time when that happens again then I must predict that my body budget is going to drop drastically. And so your brain then starts to get stuck in that loop where it doesn't ever escape the past. It just continuously keeps predicting. Because you keep going back. Because you keep going back, yeah. Correct your error, essentially. Yeah, you keep going back to the past to make the predictions, which is the natural state, but you don't kind of take into account the new situation that's happening. So... it is the, the, you are right, it's the uncorrected prediction error thing, but it's because you stuck in the past Ooh. or something. Um, and then, yeah, so in effect, you're locked into a cycle of uncorrected predictions trapped in, the, in an adverse past where your mi- metabolic needs were high. A depressed brain is effectively locked into misery. It's like a brain in chronic pain, ignoring prediction error, but on a much larger scale that shuts you down. It puts your budget chronically in debt, so your brain tries to cut spending. What's the most effective way to do that? To stop moving, to not pay attention to the world or the prediction error that's happening. Um, And that's the unrelenting fatigue of depression. like, I mean, none of this is scientific fact, but it's a very intriguing idea and it rings true oh. because if your brain is constantly stuck in that past and it isn't able to move forward and because it's basically shut down and so it doesn't do want to do anything and it doesn't want to try and pre- correct for this error, then you, yeah. Yeah. Um... So then she says, if depression is a disorder caused by chronic misbudgeting, then it's not strictly speaking exclusively a psychiatric disease. It's also a neurological, metabolic, and immunological disease. Depression is an imbalance of many intertwined parts of the nervous system that we can understand only by treating the whole person, not by treating one system in isolation um, like other parts of, like the parts of a machine. Yeah. Uh, I think she's kind of hinting at like medicine alone is not yeah. the answer. Um, and then just an interesting comment on the depression thing for her as well was she says that um, I encountered something similar not long ago in a physician's office. I'd begin feeling fatigued for some time and I'd gained some weight and the doctor asked, are you depressed? I I responded, well, I don't have sad feelings, but I do feel uh, dead tired much of the time. He countered with, maybe you're depressed and you don't know it. And then she goes on a little bit of a um, speech there. And then she says, I wound up explaining uh, explaining interception and body budgets to him. But here's the thing. If I'd simply... If he had simply diagnosed me with depression um, and if she accepted it, he could have actually cultivated the feeling of depression in her at that time. And that belief might have worsened 
her miscalibrated body budget. And she might have, and then she says, if you start to search for problems in life, you can always find Find something to, um, so that's not to say that if someone, if a doctor says that maybe you're depressed, that you should be like, no, I'm definitely not. Um, but it's, it is something to take into account to say like, are they right? Or maybe they're not right about that. Because if you start believing that the cupcake is a muffin or the muffin is a cupcake, your body will predict differently. Um, I mean, again, it feels like I like this, but I'll repeat it again. You create your environment. (laughs) Sorry. You create your environment. Uh, Yeah, if something is said enough to you, you end up believing. And I think they did warn about, and I think, I know we didn't touch much about it, but we did speak about briefly earlier about how, and it goes about the whole social, uh, what was it again? But anyway, the whole that we uh, essentially pass on emotions and mm-hmm. you know and if we're not careful then yeah we end up passing on the wrong thing because if you willy-nilly tell someone that they're depressed and to then believe that they are then yeah then they might actually be to yeah. become depressed because uh, of you, you. Uh, and it's and not only you it's got related to their past and all kinds yeah, of things yeah, but but it just and f- f- it coming from a profession in the field that I think even makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, More dangerous. Be, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and she also touches on the, so she's mentioned the whole implications for like, what does this mean for us? Oh. We should do X, Y, Z. And one of the things she says somewhere else is that, and it's building on what you were saying, is that when we interact with people, we should actually take more responsibility yeah. of the way that we interact Ooh. with them because exactly the same depression example say that you're depressed then they believe that they're depressed but also just the way that you interact with them can shape the way that they experience reality Ooh. and not in like uh, she, i think she even uses the words she's not in like a willy-nilly way Ooh. it's like oh whatever you know it's so just shaping reality and stuff it's like a really it, it happens Ooh. The simple idea of it is the whole positive, um, think of positive thoughts and then you'll become more positive. And we chatted about that a bit earlier. And I genuinely think that that is correct. It's building, it's walking that path Mm. in your mind, but you can also help walk that path in other people's minds, Mm. especially if you like raising kids or you have close Mm. friends or something like that. If you have a close friend that's really negative about everything, Oh yeah. Trying to be, trying. You don't have oh. to completely disagree with them, but then, but not trying to agree with them on the negative things. Yeah. Trying to find a positive f- or at least neutral. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Try to find the the light in the darkness. Mm. You know. Um, yeah. 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 Know, yeah. Yeah. Um. There's that last part with the law stuff. Do you want to just mention the two things? The yeah judge yeah so i mean we we did speak about it earlier about uh so mm. the, the last part is uh so the, we just looked at emotions and illnesses and, mm. and the other part after that was emotions and law and yeah. 
yeah like we mentioned earlier that judges presiding cases before and after lunch uh, yeah. were more likely to the ones after lunch were likely to grant people parole than those before because you know their gut feeling before lunch told them that the person isn't ready to mm. be released yet but yet again it was just them misinterpreting their own internal feeling of being hungry you know interception the interception um but yeah it it went further to say how which was interesting how let's say if a man ended up killing the wife if the fun had mm. um if the man caught the wife cheating like he would end up on a lesser sentence saying that no he was acting out of anger than a woman reacting the same way because society tells us that um men are more angry um mm, aggressive than, than, women, than yeah. women um yeah and it was it it went on to say like i mean for instance the laws of the world or of our country are based on emotions actually mm. you know because certain things make people feel good and that's deemed good and things that are bad or cause negative emotions then those naturally in the law for under the bad side you know um and yeah they went on further to say people or oh, people feel differently towards people of different races mm. which also affects um how the um judgments are uh, mm-hmm. how the judgment in the end and the more interesting one was also <laughs> about um uh is it the Boston bomber there was something mentioned briefly about him that he was actually from uh, don't quote me but he was from a certain part of the world where remorse is only triggered in certain instances and one being um when you feel you're putting your family to shame and like in during um his trial like he did apparently write a letter weeks before uh his case uh, or his mm. um he went to court but that apparently was never read out because it was yeah part of evidence that was not meant to be used as evidence in that but the only time and this was based on western culture influence uh, people that read emotions from the classical view in all his time during the case there was no point at which he how can I he exerted or showed, showed, showed that showed uh, remorse, remorse the only time where he showed some sort of emotion that was remotely close to remorse was when his uh, aunt was um, asked to speak uh, as a character witness for mm-hmm. him. Uh, but people said, why only then? But whenever anything was discussed with regards to the whole entire situation, there was no way in which that was shown. But yeah. She then later said to be like, no, the only reason that was the case, he could have been showing remorse, but just because he was from a different part, it was shown differently. But 
the one thing that also resembles remorse to them was when you're feeling bad for yeah. shaming your family, which is higher up in their culture. Well, if yeah, I think that it was it's yeah, it's that it's an honor culture that that they were part of. So I mean, like he did something wrong, yeah. he deserved to go to jail. But the question is like when he goes to jail or gets put on a death sentence or whatever happens, the when the judge makes that judgment, is it an uh, a judgment that has no feelings oh. associated with an impartial? Well, I don't know what the word is, but um, a a judgment that's not affected by emotion, oh. or no, 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 was no, it no, affected no, no. That, by that, emotion? That, no, that was different. To, to be like he actually didn't show any remorse. So uh, this was two different things. The one you're saying was the one after where it was just a general discussion to say. That if some, like you're saying, if the, some people are supposed to make judgment impartial of their feelings, is that actually really true? Because all emotions or feelings are based on past experiences. So there's no way in which you can make a decision on a case without having any influence from your past experiences. Yeah. But it wasn't this also... So he- no, no. So this was a bit different. This was uh, to say that... Um, he didn't show any remorse. So, yeah, yeah. So to them, it was like, just because for the fact that you didn't show any remorse, then we find you guilty. So in the writer's defense, it was like, no, the only reason it seemed like he sh- didn't show any remorse was because, oh, the remorse they saw, they felt was not at the right time. Again, yeah, yeah. people playing judge and whatnot. To them, they felt... He was supposed to show more remorse when he was being questioned about the event itself rather than when the aunt yeah, was yeah. being a character witness. So that was one aspect to just sound differentiate to be like based on different cultures, people respond differently in terms of emotions and people mm. then to tie to the legal part, people are then judged according to what emotions are sort of showed or presented, mm. which can be incorrect because they then went on to say in another case, someone went, was up for parole and was very remorseful um, and was released. And I think it was like country, years yeah. later, she pretty much committed the same crime at even greater scale. Yeah, I no. think there was one where the the like the guy was released, and then like the next day mm-hmm. he committed the like murdered two people or something like that. Yeah, so that was just one way to be like how we perceive others, like what yeah. emotions we see in others. But then um, the one you were referring to now was the one where when a jury is selected and are asked to not be influenced by their own feelings mm. in when making a decision. How is that possible if every thought of ours is actually based on predictions of what we've actually experienced before? Yeah. So it can never actually be impartial, as you say. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, with that Boston bomber or whatever it was, he, the judge made a prediction error, mm. essentially because of the fact that he thought that based on the person's facial expressions and things, that that person wasn't remorseful, mm-hmm. when actually, and we can never know for sure, yeah. but 
there's a chance that he was remorseful because of the letter and because of a mm. bunch of things like the fact that it was part of an honor culture and part of the culture where you don't show your feelings and that's the respectable thing mm. to do in situations like that. Whereas we would, uh, as a Western um, cultural mindset, we would be like, cannot believe that that mm. person isn't showing any emotion mm. there. They must be heartless. Mm. Um, and I mean, maybe he was, but the, the pure fact that he wasn't expressing emotion in the way that we expect uh, is not good justification mm. for saying that they're heartless or not heartless. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very important, important point. Okay. Cool. Any uh, final conclusions, Peter? Um, no, I don't have any like solid sort of conclusion. But yeah, just um, if you get the chance, read the book. It's it's on the longer side. Um, feel terrible that we're still scrambling this week when we pretty much had two months to read the book. <laughs> yeah. We're, but I think our December holiday caught up to us. Uh, mm. Caught up to me, anyways. Um, me as well, yeah. But no, it. Uh, I think we say this about every <laughs> book that we read. That read it. Um, mm. um, you'll be confused. I, I, I'm. I'm still <laughs> very, very yeah. confused. Uh, still trying to figure out lots of things. Um, but yeah. I think it's. Um, I'm glad I read it. It's. It's given me a lot to think about lately. Actually. Um, mm. Just like you said, how be mindful. And I mean, we always say it lightly uh, to be like, be mindful on how you treat others and whatnot. But we never, we never stress about how we can actually affect other people's emotions. Like uh, yeah. how, how to be mindful about imposing emotions on others. You know, we all about treating, but you know, we forget how powerful um, inferior emotions and others is mm. um so yeah just to be mindful about a lot of things i mean the, the one which i still think it's scary is about how you know we always say how kids are sponges but i think this book yeah made me realize at what level and yeah to those people with children <laughs> do the best to impart the best emotions that knowledge in general but just mm. yeah just be mindful on how you treat your kids yeah. um yeah the most uh which i know my friends would always say treat, like the give you a baby and be like no speak to them like you speak me and it always very confusing but i think it's it is important because mm. You know, they, they cipher out, again, like I said, they, they hear so much noise, but then they they pick up to what's said often, and that's how they, they construct languages and all that kind of thing. And yeah. Yeah, like if you speak positively around them, then, yeah, I mean, it even said, instead of just going, bad girl, go, try and say... I'm saying you're a bad girl because you've done... Th and they're able to link that, okay, mm. that behavior is notorious, then thus it's bad. And, oh, good, like, yes, saying I'm good because I've done, which is, you know, I should do that a little more, you know? Yeah. Um. 
so yeah like yeah it's very important to really really be mindful of how emotions are made and just be mindful of what you put out in the world in general hmm. yeah. yeah it affects others hmm. yeah i know it's true and and the kids one is a big one yeah. i mean if you if you teach kids um healthy emotion concepts oh. then they will most likely have healthy predictions mm. and that will more likely lead to them being healthy and mm. all the different things that in like a general society we would consider as that's a successful human yeah. being mm. um, because of the ability to predict well and learn from those mm. um, from errors and, and different things. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, from my side, I think there's there's two quotes that I'll end off and then some mm. random comments. So she says on 285, body budget predictions laden with affect, not logic and reason, are the main drivers of experience and behavior. So behavior is driven, behavior and experience are driven by body bre- budget predictions that are laden, that are mixed with, for, full of feelings. Oh. And then on 289, she says, your experience are not a window into reality. Rather, your brain is wired to model your world, driven by what is relevant to your body budget. And then you experience that model as reality. Your experiences might seem to be triggered by the world outside the skull, but they are informed by a storm of prediction and correction. So yeah, that's the core ideas of the book. I think we've touched on it many different times from different angles, but, and the the comments that you made about children and how we treat other people and um, things like how, what we should do to keep our own body budgets in uh, or regulated well um, and learning those new emotion categories and trying to use those that wider variety of uh, emotion categories to be able to recategorize the the way that we um, perceive our current emotions or to colloquially use the term how we feel. Um, yeah, I think those are very helpful things at becoming what Lisa would say, master of our emotions. Um, because for ourselves and how we feel day to day um, it will have a massive impact and it will therefore also impact others as they predict off of our predictions Um, yeah it's not we we don't construct just our own realities we help construct the realities of others Um, yeah thanks peter cool thanks james we'll chat again cool cheers